And I invite you to please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And so with turning now to Ephesians 4, we've turned the corner in our study of Ephesians, and now we're beginning the, the second half of Paul's letter. And if you've, if you've spent much time in, in church, especially churches like this one, then you've, you've most likely heard that the, the general outline of Paul's various New Testament letters is essentially the first half of the letter is doctrine and theology, and then the second half of the letter is, is duty and practical application. That Paul essentially first sets forth and explains uh, the glorious truths of God's provision of salvation for all who are in Christ, and then Paul follows with specific and clear exhortations to act and to think and to live in light of those glorious truths. Now, that's a pretty accurate um, outline of uh, many of his letters, and that's certainly, for the most part, true for Ephesians. And we're going to see that from the very first verse in Ephesians 4. We're going to see that Paul's moved from primarily writing about doctrine in the first three chapters, that now he's going to primarily focus on application for the Christian life, which flow out of the truths he's been writing about for three chapters. That he's been primarily writing about wonderful theological truth, and now he says that we need to put the truth we profess to believe into practice. So I mentioned this, this outline of, of Paul primarily writing about theology and then moving to primarily writing about application, to moving from truth to practice or indicatives to imperatives or instruction to exhortation because I think it's generally true of Ephesians and helpful overall. However, I want to issue a, a pastoral warning. I hope you'll receive it as such. Because I think it's possible that, that, that some of us are thinking, man, I'm, man I'm, I'm really bummed and disappointed that we're now moving away from this theology and this doctrine to application. Then there are others who, I worry, are thinking, okay, finally, we're finally done with all the doctrine and theology and I'm ready for the application. And so, on the one hand, if you're disappointed to move from Paul's doctrinal emphasis in the first three chapters to his much more practical emphasis, and maybe you think, okay, yeah, 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 the rest, the rest of the letter is just application. I, I basically know all of that stuff already. Then please hear me on this. Faithful, biblical, Christian sermons are never intended to produce knowledge only. They're never intended to merely fill our heads. Our doctrine is meant to be professed with our mouths, believed with our hearts, and then lived out in our lives. On the other hand, if you're relieved to be done with all that doctrine and theology and you say, finally, we get some practical application, I fear that you may have the wrong idea about the Bible and about Christianity as a whole. You see, Paul has not been wasting our time for the past three chapters. In Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, he obviously knew those theological truths about God, about ourselves, about the nature of our salvation are absolutely essential for laying the foundation we need to live the Christian life. The old pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, put it this way, we can never attach too much importance to doctrine, for it is out of the doctrines of God, man, and salvation that the direction and impetus for the living of the Christian life spring. At the same time, we can never attach too much importance to practice, for it is the result of doctrine 
and proof of its divine nature. It was said of Jonathan Edwards that his theology was all application and his application was all theology. And I think Edwards learned that from the Apostle Paul because as we've seen and as we're going to see, his theology was all application and his application was all theology. And I hope you've seen some of that so far in Ephesians and if not, then my prayer is that you will begin to see it as we move forward. And and that is my aim with this sermon and every sermon that our theology would be all application, that our application would be all theology. Now, in, in, in the second half of Ephesians, Paul's going to develop two main overarching themes or characteristics which are to be true of God's people, which are to be true of the church. First, he says that the church is to be unified, to be unified that we are one new people, a single family, the church. Second, the church is to be holy, that we are new people. We are new creations in Christ who are to live new lives, lives that are distinct and set apart from the world. And so I hope you'll look for those themes today and look for those themes in the weeks and the months to come. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And we're going to look at these two verses under five headings. I know it's only two verses, but we got five headings. We're going to first ask this question, okay, what, what does it mean to walk worthy of the gospel, looking at verse 1? And then we see in verse 2 that Paul says it looks like humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, bearing with one another in love. And so we'll look at each of those in turn. And so first... Walk worthy of the gospel. So look with me at verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul's making a shift from primarily writing about theology to shifting to primarily exhorting to application. He's moving from truth to practice, from instruction to exhortation. And therefore, at the beginning of verse 1, it is our signal. So put another way, all that's to follow in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is to be understood as the clear implication of the glorious doctrinal truths and realities that Paul's laid out for us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. You see, in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul's been writing about many wonderful, glorious truths and realities that we've, we've learned about predestination and election about our adoption and the redemption through the shed blood of Christ, about our regeneration and our new birth in Christ, about the work of the Holy Spirit in each believer's life, and about God's grand plan of redemption in joining Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, people from all types and stripes and backgrounds, people from all tongues, tribes, peoples, nations, into one new kingdom, one new spiritual family, into one new body, the body of Christ, into the church. 
And after writing about these wonderful doctrinal and theological truths for three chapters, if you remember, at the end of chapter three, Paul just bursts forth. He erupts into doxology in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It almost sounds as if that's an ending, right? And Paul can close the book and then move on to something else. But that's not the end. That, that's the middle. Then we turn the page to chapter 4. And we read Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, therefore, because of everything I've been saying, in light of everything that I've been explaining to you for the past three chapters, because all of that is true, Because that's who you are, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Put another way, Paul is saying the glorious truth of God's gracious provision for you in Christ summons you and enables you to live a new life, to live a transformed life, to be who you are now in Christ. That our doctrine is meant to be professed with our mouths, believed with our hearts, and lived out in our lives. See, when we notice that first phrase, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. This is Paul's way of saying to the Ephesians, a church he knew well, a church he dearly loved. I'm strongly urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I'm urging you as one who is currently suffering in this Roman prison for walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And notice, he uses that word walk. And Paul does this in many of his letters. The apostle John does as well. That They they often describe the Christian life, living the Christian life, as a walk. We see this in various phrases throughout the New Testament. You know, perhaps these are phrases you're familiar with. We see it in places that say, you know, walk in the light, walk in the truth, walk by faith, not by sight, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, walk in love, or as we'll get to eventually in Ephesians 5 verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. So Paul uses the word walk to describe the whole of the Christian life. And I think he does this intentionally to emphasize at least a few things. First, to communicate that our faith in Christ is to involve our whole life, every area, our whole heart, the the whole manner by which we live. That our faith in Christ is meant to impact every decision. And that's challenging. And, and in fact, this passage, the more we go through it, okay, just so you know, you may think, wow, this is a great little simple, it's a simple passage talking about, you know, humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Guys, this is a challenging text. Okay, at least for me, but I think that you're a little bit like me. And this is challenging. It's a challenging text because what Paul's saying is that our Christian faith, it ought to impact the way we treat others. The way we think about them, the way we speak about them. Second, 
It emphasizes that we are to keep walking in the sense that we are to keep making continual progress as we keep maturing spiritually, as we keep growing up in Christ, as we keep growing in Christ's likeness from now until the time that God calls us home to heaven. And then third, Paul describes the Christian life as a walk because it requires effort on our part. Now, effort, effort is not a bad word for the Christian. Okay, it's not a bad word. And I want you to not hear what I'm not saying. And so please don't confuse me saying that effort is a bad word. Don't confuse effort with earn. I'm not trying to confuse those two. So look carefully at verse Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see, Paul's not urging the Ephesians to, to earn or merit the grace of God. Paul would never do that, and the Ephesians could never do that. As Paul has already taught in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, Paul's point is that they've already been saved by God's grace. They already have it. They didn't earn it. It was given to them as a gift, and it's God's grace that has changed them. And it's God's grace that is changing them. That's given them new hearts. That's enabling them to walk in newness of life, to, to walk in a new way, to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have already been called. As Pastor Ian Hamilton summarizes, the gospel of God's grace in Christ not only changes our status before God, but also transforms our state. We become new creations in Christ. See, Paul's point in Ephesians 4.1 is that you are a new creation in Christ. So live like it. Live like it. Look, look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner. Paul's saying, I urge you, I implore you, I beg you, I plead with you to be who you are. Be who you are now in Christ. Follow Christ. Love him. Love his word. Love his church. Love his people. Let what you profess with your mouth and claim to believe with your heart be lived out in your life. Be who you are. Live, walk in a manner worthy of your calling as a child of God. Live like you are a member of God's new family. That you are no longer who you once were. Therefore, be who you are. Realize who you are and be who you are. That every, every time I come across a verse or a passage in Paul's writings, and there's quite a few times where he's making this same point, I can't help but, but think of the Lion King. And I, you know, I'm, I'm 42 and I keep thinking of the Lion King. I guess it came at that part, that stage in my life. And, and I think you know, if you Hopefully you're all familiar with the story. If not, I'm not sure I would say go watch it. But here, here's the, the summary. The lion, at the beginning of The Lion King, the Lion King is murdered by his evil brother. And his, his son, Simba, uh, runs away. He runs away uh, because of his, his father's death. And he, he believes that he did it. So he's believing some wrong things about himself. But he, he attempts to run away from his home. And more than that, to run away from his identity to run away from who he is, to run away from his identity as the priest, as the son of the king. 
as the heir of the kingdom, and that is until he has a dream, and that his father comes to him in his dream, and he hears this. You are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. And I think in many ways, that's, what Paul, that's Paul's point here at the beginning of Ephesians 4. I've been telling you for three chapters. This is who you are because of what God has done for you in Christ, what he has done in you. This is who you are, and now he's beginning to say, now be who you are. And, th- and this principle is, is captured in the third membership vow that you have to make whenever you join our church. I know you have the membership vows all memorized, and so, but we'll just look at it together anyway. Do you now resolve in promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? That you will endeavor by the grace of the Holy Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Be who you are. Okay, well, what does walking in a manner uh, worthy of the gospel look like for a Christian? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in verse 2. So look at verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. With all humility. The, the church father, Augustine, was once asked, you know, what are the, the chief Christian virtues or the chief Christian characteristics? He gave three answers. You know what he said? Humility, humility, humility. I think Augustine answered that way because he knew the truth about himself and about those around him. And see, the truth is, the truth for me and the truth for you is that we struggle with pride. Now, you may say, well, Richard, yeah, but, okay, you might, but, and I do, but, but you don't know me. Well, I listen, I know enough about you. And I know enough about, about us that we, that pride is a struggle for us. We struggle with pride in different ways, and we struggle with pride in different areas of our lives, and we struggle to different degrees, but there's a reason why Paul started with calling the Ephesians to be humble, to walk in all humility. Now, one of the, to, to understand the, what is the biblical word, the biblical definition of humility, I think a helpful place to go is in Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians, in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 5. And before I read these verses, know these are very, very challenging verses. I, I, every time I've ever read them out loud to, to a group in a sanctuary or to a, in a class, that I can tell this hits everybody hard as we think about what Paul says here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, humility is not having low self-esteem, or it's not demeaning yourself, and it's not even it's not embracing a, a lifestyle of passivity. You see, a genuinely, a genuinely humble person can still be bold and courageous and strong-willed, strong-minded, But the difference is a humble person is always thinking of others too, not just thinking of themselves. They're not only insisting on their own way just because it's their way. A humble person is not driven by selfish ambition. 
They're not looking out only for their own interest, but rather looking to the interest of others. And so listen to this pastoral uh, word from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, humility is the recognition that everything we have and are, everything we accomplish, is because of the grace of Jesus Christ to us. Every gift we possess was given, not to inflate our self-importance and bolster our ego, but to enable us to minister to others as Christ has ministered to us as a loving servant. We have nothing except what we have received. Understand this, and no matter how great our gifts are, our head will not be inflated, nor will we count ourselves as more important than others. So let me ask you the simple question. How are you doing? Are you humble? With those who know you best, what would they say? We need to remember everything we have, everything we are, everything we accomplish is because of the grace of Jesus Christ to us. What does it mean to, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel look like? It looks like humility. The second thing Paul says, it looks like gentleness. And so look again at our text. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Now, gentleness is related to humility, and gentleness, like humility, has nothing to do with weakness or timidity or indifference or passivity or cowardice. The Greek word translated gentleness was used of wild animals which were tamed, especially of wild horses, you know, wild, rebellious stallions that were eventually broken and trained. You see, that horse or the other animal still has its same strength, its same power, its same spirit, but its will is now rightly governed under the control of its master. See, gentleness is strength under control. Strength bridled by God and his word for the good of others. Biblical gentleness is displayed in a Christian who is self-controlled and submitted to Christ and his word. Therefore, gentle people are not avenging or self-assertive or vindictive or defensive. Now, that's, that's convicting for me because I, I feel that way. I feel that way often. Even if those around me can't tell that I feel that way, I feel that way. But you see, gentle people do not demand their rights. And they do not assert personal control over every situation because they resist the temptation of thinking, I know better than they know. Have you ever thought that? They resist the temptation of thinking, they would never say this, but thinking, I'm the smartest person in the room. Have you ever thought that? It's a challenge. It's a challenge for me to even say, but we need to be challenged here. See, humility and gentleness are closely related. That Christians can and should be humble and gentle and still be strong in our convictions about doctrine and theology and truth and morality and ethics. But we are to always hold these strong convictions with hearts that are marked by humility and gentleness, that are marked by love for our neighbors, and hearts that are most especially marked by love for our brothers and sisters in Christ within the local church. So what does walking in a manner worthy of the gospel look like? It looks like humility, looks like gentleness, 
Paul goes on to say it looks like patience. So look again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. I think to understand what the Bible means by patience is very helpful to remember how the King James Version, older versions, used to translate the word that's now translated patience in most of our Bibles. They used to translate it as long-suffering or being long-sold, long-suffering. I think that's very helpful because patience is the ability to suffer for a long time, a long time, even through very, very difficult, impossibly difficult circumstances and even with very, very difficult, impossibly difficult people. Okay, I won't ask you to answer. I'll just admit to you, patience is hard for me. Patience is hard. But a patient person is able to take a long-term view, even of a very difficult situation, especially when things go wrong. You see, the opposite, the opposite of patience is having a hair-trigger temper exploding at the slightest provocation or giving up and quitting at the slightest difficulty or the slight withdrawing at the slightest setback. So a practical definition is of the ability to suffer and endure difficult circumstances and difficult people without blowing up or giving up. And my guess is, is that every one of us in this room that, that we can think of times whenever we have been impatient and we, we've, we've either blown up in, in anger or frustration or we've given up, just, we've just quit, we've withdrawn with resentment, bitterness, resignation, and it never, ever makes things better. Our impatience never makes things better. It always brings hurt and sometimes devastating wounds to those around us. Those, those who are in, 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 the, in the path in the, in, of, of the storm of our impatience. And my guess is that, that most of us, probably all of us, we know what it feels like to receive the wounds of other people's impatience. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling is to walk in humility and gentleness and patience. And then Paul says, also says in forbearance. So look at verses 1 and 2. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, commentator S.M. Baugh says this, the walk characterized by all humility and gentleness is easy to project in a vacuum or when surrounded by admirers and friends. In other words, it's easy it's easy to grade out well in, in your self-assessment of your humility and your gentleness and your patience and your bearing one another in love whenever you're either all by yourself or you're surrounded by people who are always flattering you, patting you on the back, telling you how wonderful you are. But now Paul gives shape to what genuine humility and gentleness looks like when they enter the crucible of real life in the church, real life in our homes, real life in the church, patient forbearance with one another in love. See, that word that's translated bearing with means to patiently tolerate someone who's difficult or foolish. 
We might say Paul's talking about being patient and, and bearing with someone who is really, really, really aggravating. They're really, really, really annoying. R.C. Sproul uses a helpful analogy here of our hearts being filled with, with landmines. Here's what he says. Every human being has in his personality certain minefields made up of mines that are hidden beneath the surface. These are sensitive points where we respond out of proportion to the situation because these are areas wherein we are easily provoked. In some people's field, there may be only one or two mines for every 10 acres of field. These people are rather easy to get along with. Sadly, that's not me. It is my wife, but it's not me. With other people, there is no safe passageway through their field because it's wall-to-wall mines. They are touchy, sensitive, always getting angry, always getting upset, and always causing problems. Okay, so I have to ask, so how, how is your minefield? What would your closest friends say? What would, what would your spouse say? What would your children say? Children, what would your parents say? How patient and long-suffering are you with difficult circumstances and difficult people? He's sticking with Sproul's analogy. Paul says in our text that Christians are to, to submit our hearts to Christ and to prayerfully ask God to remove our minds and to give us the patience to bear with those around us, most especially those inside our homes and inside the church who still have wall-to-wall minds in their lives. And so... We are to have, uh, we are to, if, if patience is having a long-term view of a difficult situation, forbearance is having a long view of that person and how they are still a work in progress. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. Christian patience and forbearance involves being able to take a long-term view of a fellow Christian as a work in progress, a process. Remembering that our Lord has been, has been, and is so patient with us. How easily we lose sight of that and treat fellow believers as though Christ had never needed to be patient with us. Now, I find that quote both very helpful and very convicting. So th- think about the difference it would make in how we and how you related to that very, very, very aggravating and annoying person if you began to take a long-term view of them as a work in process, remembering both that Jesus is not finished with them and remembering that Jesus has been very, very patient with you. You see, Paul urges us to walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and to bear with one another in love. Think about that, in love. You see what Paul's doing? Paul's calling us to love one another. I mean, remember how Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, Christian love expresses humility 
gentleness, patience, and forbearance in love within our homes and within the church. And so look again at our text. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, see, Paul, Paul's not urging you, okay, to now, okay, all right, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I'm going to white-knuckle my way uh, to being better. I'm, I'm going to become more humble and more gentle and more patient and more forbearing. Okay, now, yes, you need to do all those things, but, but please, you know, don't leave this sanctuary thinking that, okay, now it's up to me, okay, to try really, really hard to do that. Paul's not saying that. I'm not preaching that. Okay, I, I, I don't want this sermon to be another brick in the backpack sermon. Do you know what those are? Those, those are those sermons where you come to church that morning, it was hard. You're weighed down by heavy burdens, heavy loads. You feel a lot of, of guilt and shame, perhaps, over, over failures and sin in your life. And it feels like you're carrying around a, a backpack that's filled with you know, 20 bricks. You walk into the sanctuary, you sit down, and then the pastor loads the backpack up with another 20 bricks and sends you out and, and wishes you well. Okay, I don't mean for this to be another brick in the backpack sermon, so please don't hear that, but Paul is strongly urging us to be mindful and honest about how we're walking, about how we're living, specifically about how we relate to one another, most especially inside our homes and inside the church. And I know this is challenging, but don't miss that Paul called the Ephesians and he called us to remember how we have experienced, how we've been transformed, and how we are being transformed more and more into Christ's likeness by all that Jesus has done, by his person, by his work, by his humility, his gentleness, his patience toward us in the gospel. I mean, let, let, let's revisit Philippians 2. I read the first few verses, but look, let's look at Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, that's a big passage. There's a lot that we could say about it, but the point I want you to look at is, and not miss is that look at what Jesus did for you to save you, to make you a new creation in Christ. He took on flesh, he lived for you, he suffered for you, he bled for you to humbly serve you in the greatest way possible in his death on the cross, to save you from, his sin, from your sins, to credit you, to gift you with his righteousness, to give you a new heart, put his Holy Spirit within you, to raise you from spiritual death to new newness in life, to walk in newness of life. And, and don't forget, think about that's humility. Think about, about gentleness. Remember Jesus' invitation at the end of Matthew 11 in verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, dear Christian, don't forget that you've always found Jesus to deal with you gently. That Jesus humbled himself in the greatest possible way to save you, and you've never found Jesus to be harsh or cruel to you. Rather, you've always found him to be gentle. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And praise God that he's ever so patient with you. He's ever so patient with us and our growth towards spiritual maturity and our growth towards Christ's likeness. You see, friends, in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, Paul is saying, I urge you, I implore you, I I plead with you, I beg you, be who you are. Be who you are. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've already received. Be who you are. Love Christ. Follow Christ. Love him. Love his word. Love his church. Love his people. Love one another. Let what you profess with your mouth and you say that you believe with your heart, live it out in your life. Be who you are. Live, walk in a manner worthy of your calling as a child of God with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Live like you really are a member of God's new family. You are no longer who you once were. But Paul says, be who you are. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, for your word. Your God-breathed word. It's authoritative. It is sufficient to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness so that we, your people, may be complete, equipped for every good work you call us to. And you call us to love one another. You call us to to walk, to, to live with one another with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Father, please do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. Enable us to do this, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.